Chapter Twenty One B of The Golden Bough, Sections Eight to Eleven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Chapter Twenty One tabooed things. 8. Disposal of cut hair and nails. But even when the hair and nails have been safely cut, there remains the difficulty of disposing of them, for their owner believes himself liable to suffer from any harm that may befall them. The notion that a man may be bewitched by means of the clippings of his hair, the parings of his nails, or any other severed portion of his person, is almost world-wide, and attested by evidence too ample, too familiar, and too tedious in its uniformity, to be here analysed at length. The general idea on which the superstition rests is that of the sympathetic connection supposed to persist between a person and everything that has once been part of his body, or in any way closely related to him. A very few examples must suffice. They belong to that branch of sympathetic magic which may be called contagious. Dread of sorcery, we are told, formed one of the most salient characteristics of the Marquesan islanders in the old days. The sorcerer took some of the hair, spittle, or other bodily refuse of the man he wished to injure, wrapped it up in a leaf, and placed the packet in a bag woven of threads or fibres which were knotted in an intricate way. The whole was then buried, with certain rites, and thereupon the victim wasted away of a languishing sickness which lasted twenty days. His life, however, might be saved by discovering and digging up the buried hair, spittle, or what not, for as soon as this was done the power of the charm ceased. A Maori sorcerer, intent on bewitching somebody, sought to get a tress of his victim's hair, the parings of his nails, some of his spittle, or a shred of his garment. Having obtained the object, whatever it was, he chanted certain spells and curses over it in a falsetto voice, and buried it in the ground. As the thing decayed, the person to whom it had belonged was supposed to waste away. When an Australian blackfellow wishes to get rid of his wife, he cuts off a lock of her hair in her sleep, ties it to his spear-thrower, and goes with it to a neighbouring tribe, where he gives it to a friend. His friend sticks the spear-thrower up every night before the camp-fire, and when it falls down it is a sign that the wife is dead. The way in which the charm operates was explained to Dr. Howitt by a Wiradjuri man. You see, he said, when a blackfellow doctor gets hold of something belonging to a man and roasts it with things and sings over it, the fire catches hold of the smell of the man, and that settles the poor fellow. The Huzuls of the Carpathians imagine that if mice get a person's shorn hair and make a nest of it, the person will suffer from headache or even become idiotic. Similarly, in Germany, it is a common notion that if birds find a person's cut hair and build their nests with it, the person will suffer from headache. Sometimes it is thought that he will have an eruption on the head. The same superstition prevails, or used to prevail, in West Sussex. 
Again, it is thought that cut or combed out hair may disturb the weather by producing rain and hail, thunder and lightning. We have seen that in New Zealand a spell was uttered at hair-cutting to avert thunder and lightning. In the Tyrol, witches are supposed to use cut or combed out hair to make hailstones or thunderstorms with. Slinkeet Indians have been known to attribute stormy weather to the rash act of a girl who had combed her hair outside of the house. The Romans seem to have held similar views, for it was a maxim with them that no one on shipboard could cut his hair or nails except in a storm, that is, when the mischief was already done. In the highlands of Scotland it is said that no sister should comb her hair at night if she have a brother at sea. In West Africa, when the Mani of Chitombe, or Jumba, died, the people used to run in crowds to the corpse and tear out his hair, teeth and nails, which they kept as a rain charm, believing that otherwise no rain would fall. The Makoko of the Anzikos begged the missionaries to give them half their beards as a rain charm. If cut hair and nails remain in sympathetic connection with the person from whose body they have been severed, it is clear that they can be used as hostages for his good behaviour by any one who may chance to possess them. For, on the principles of contagious magic, he has only to injure the hair or nails in order to hurt simultaneously their original owner. Hence, when the Nandi have taken a prisoner, they shave his head and keep the shorn hair as a surety that he will not attempt to escape. But when the captive is ransomed, they return his shorn hair with him to his own people. To preserve the cut hair and nails from injury and from the dangerous uses to which they may be put by sorcerers, it is necessary to deposit them in some safe place. The shorn locks of a Maori chief were gathered with much care and placed in an adjoining cemetery. The Tahitians buried the cuttings of their hair at the temples. In the streets of Soku, a modern traveller observed cairns of large stones piled against walls with tufts of human hair inserted in the crevices. On asking the meaning of this, he was told that when any native of the place pulled his hair, he carefully gathered up the clippings and deposited them in one of these cairns, all of which were sacred to the fetish, and therefore inviolable. These cairns of sacred stones, he further learned, were simply a precaution against witchcraft, for if a man were not thus careful in disposing of his hair, some of it might fall into the hands of his enemies, who would, by means of it, be able to cast spells over him, and so compass his destruction. When the top-knot of a Siamese child has been cut with great ceremony, the short hairs are put into a little vessel made of plantain leaves and set adrift on the nearest river or canal. As they float away, all that was wrong or harmful in the child's disposition is believed to depart with them. The long hairs are kept till the child makes a pilgrimage to the holy footprint of Buddha on the sacred hill at Prabat. They are then presented to the priests, who are supposed to make them into brushes with which they sweep the footprint. But in fact so much hair is thus offered each year that the priests cannot use it all, so they quietly burn the superfluity as soon as the pilgrims' backs are turned. The cut hair and nails of the Flamen Dialis were buried under a lucky tree. The shorn tresses of the Vestal Virgins were hung on an ancient lotus tree. 
Often the clipped hair and nails are stored away in any secret place, not necessarily in a temple or cemetery or at a tree, as in the cases already mentioned. Thus in Swabia you are recommended to deposit your clipped hair in some spot where neither sun nor moon can shine on it, for example in the earth or under a stone. In Danzig it is buried in a bag under the threshold. In Ugi, one of the Solomon Islands, men bury their hair lest it should fall into the hands of an enemy, who would make magic with it and so bring sickness or calamity on them. The same fear seems to be general in Melanesia, and has led to a regular practice of hiding cut hair and nails. The same practice prevails among many tribes of South Africa, from a fear lest wizards should get hold of the severed particles and work evil with them. The Kaffirs carry still further this dread of allowing any portion of themselves to fall into the hands of an enemy, for not only do they bury their cut hair and nails in a secret spot, but when one of them cleans the head of another, he preserves the vermin which he catches, carefully delivering them to the person to whom they originally appertained, supposing, according to their theory, that as they derived their support from the blood of the man from whom they were taken, should they be killed by another, the blood of his neighbour would be in his possession, thus placing in his hands the power of some superhuman influence. Sometimes the severed hair and nails are preserved, not to prevent them from falling into the hands of a magician, but that the owner may have them at the resurrection of the body to which some races look forward. Thus the Incas of Peru took extreme care to preserve the nail parings and the hairs that were shorn off or torn out with a comb, placing them in holes or niches in the walls, and if they fell out, any other Indian that saw them picked them up and put them in their places again. I very often asked different Indians at various times why they did this, in order to see what they would say, and they all replied in the same words, saying, know that all persons who are born must return to life they have no word to express resuscitation and the souls must rise out of their tombs with all that belong to their bodies we therefore in order that we may not have to search for our hair and nails at a time when there will be much hurry and confusion place them in one place that they may be brought together more conveniently and whenever it is possible we are also careful to spit in one place Similarly, the Turks never throw away the parings of their nails, but carefully stow them in cracks of the walls or of the boards, in the belief that they will be needed at the resurrection. The Armenians do not throw away their cut hair and nails and extracted teeth, but hide them in places that are esteemed holy, such as a crack in the church wall, a pillar of the house, or a hollow tree. They think that all these severed portions of themselves will be wanted at the resurrection, and that he who has not stowed them away in a safe place will have to hunt about for them on the great day. In the village of Drumconrath in Ireland, there used to be some old women who, having ascertained from Scripture that the hairs of their heads were all numbered by the Almighty, expected to have to account for them at the day of judgment. In order to be able to do so, they stuffed the severed hair away in the thatch of their cottages. Some people burn their loose hair to save it from falling into the hands of sorcerers. This is done by the Patagonians and some of the Victorian tribes. 
In the upper Vosges, they say that you should never leave the clippings of your hair and nails lying about, but burn them to hinder the sorcerers from using them against you. For the same reason, Italian women either burn their loose hairs or throw them into a place where no one is likely to look for them. The almost universal dread of witchcraft induces the West African Negroes, the Makololo of South Africa, and the Tahitians to burn or bury their shorn hair. In the Tyrol, many people burn their hair lest the witches should use it to raise thunderstorms. Others burn or bury it to prevent the birds from lining their nests with it, which would cause the heads from which the hair came to ache. This destruction of the hair and nails plainly involves an inconsistency of thought. The object of the destruction is avowedly to prevent these severed portions of the body from being used by sorcerers, but the possibility of their being so used depends upon the supposed sympathetic connection between them and the man from whom they were severed, and if this sympathetic connection still exists, clearly those severed portions cannot be destroyed without injury to the man. 9. Spittle tabooed the same fear of witchcraft which has led so many people to hide or destroy their loose hair and nails has induced others, or the same people, to treat their spittle in a like fashion. For on the principles of sympathetic magic the spittle is part of the man, and whatever is done to it will have a corresponding effect on him. A Chilote Indian, who has gathered up the spittle of an enemy, will put it in a potato, and hang the potato in the smoke uttering certain spells as he does so, in the belief that his foe will waste away as the potato dries in the smoke. Or he will put the spittle in a frog, and throw the animal into an inaccessible, unnavigable river, which will make the victim quake and shake with ague. The natives of Urewera, a district of New Zealand, enjoyed a high reputation for their skill in magic. It was said that they made use of people's spittle to bewitch them, Hence visitors were careful to conceal their spittle, lest they should furnish these wizards with a handle for working them harm. Similarly, among some tribes of South Africa, no man will spit when an enemy is near, lest his foe should find the spittle and give it to a wizard, who would then mix it with magical ingredients, so as to injure the person from whom it fell. Even in a man's own house his saliva is carefully swept away and obliterated for a similar reason. If common folk are thus cautious, it is natural that kings and chiefs should be doubly so. In the Sandwich Islands, chiefs were attended by a confidential servant, bearing a portable spittoon, and the deposit was carefully buried every morning to put it out of the reach of sorcerers. On the slave coast, for the same reason, whenever a king or chief expectorates, the saliva is scrupulously gathered up and hidden or buried. The same precautions are taken for the same reason with the spittle of the chief of Tabali in southern Nigeria. The magical use to which spittle may be put marks it out, like blood or nail parings, as a suitable material basis for a covenant, since by exchanging their saliva, the covenanting parties give each other a guarantee of good faith. If either of them afterwards forswears himself, the other can punish his perfidy by a magical treatment of the perjurer's spittle, which he has in his custody. 
Thus, when the Wajaga of East Africa desire to make a covenant, the two parties will sometimes sit down with a bowl of milk or beer between them, and, after uttering an incantation over the beverage, they each take a mouthful of the milk or beer and spit it into the other's mouth. In urgent cases, when there is no time to spend on ceremony, the two will simply spit into each other's mouth, which seals the covenant just as well. 10. Foods tabooed As might have been expected, the superstitions of the savage cluster thick about the subject of food, and he abstains from eating many animals and plants, wholesome enough in themselves, which for one reason or another he fancies would prove dangerous or fatal to the eater. Examples of abstinence are too familiar and far too numerous to quote. But if the ordinary man is thus deterred by superstitious fear from partaking of various foods, the restraints of this kind, which are laid upon sacred or tabooed persons, such as kings and priests, are still more numerous and stringent. We have already seen that the Flamendialis was forbidden to eat or even name several plants and animals, and that the flesh diet of Egyptian kings was restricted to veal and goose. In antiquity, many priests and many kings of barbarous peoples abstained wholly from a flesh diet. The Gangas, or fetish priests, of the Loango coast, are forbidden to eat or even see a variety of animals and fish, in consequence of which their flesh diet is extremely limited. Often they live only on herbs and roots, though they may drink fresh blood. The heir to the throne of Loango is forbidden from infancy to eat pork. From early childhood he is interdicted the use of the cola fruit in company. At puberty he is taught by a priest not to partake of fowls, except such as he has himself killed and cooked, and so the number of taboos goes on increasing with his years. In Fernando Po, the king, after installation, is forbidden to eat coco, arum acaule, deer and porcupine, which are the ordinary foods of the people. The head chief of the Maasai may eat nothing but milk, honey, and the roasted livers of goats, for if he partook of any other food, he would lose his power of soothsaying and of compounding charms. 11. Knots and Rings Tabooed We have seen that among the many taboos which the Flamendialis at Rome had to observe, there was one that forbade him to have a knot on any part of his garments, and another that obliged him to wear no ring unless it were broken. In the like manner, Moslem pilgrims to Mecca are in a state of sanctity or taboo, and may wear on their persons neither knots nor rings. These rules are probably of kindred significance, and may conveniently be considered together. To begin with knots, many people in different parts of the world entertain a strong objection to having any knot about their person at certain critical seasons, particularly childbirth, marriage, and death. Thus, among the Saxons of Transylvania, when a woman is in travail, all knots on her garments are untied, because it is believed that this will facilitate her delivery, and with the same intention all the locks in the house, whether on doors or boxes, are unlocked. The Laps think that a lying-in woman should have no knot on her garments, because a knot would have the effect of making the delivery difficult and painful. 
In the East Indies, this superstition is extended to the whole time of pregnancy. The people believe that if a pregnant woman were to tie knots, or braid, or make anything fast, the child would thereby be constricted, or the woman would herself be tied up when her time came. Nay, some of them enforce the observance of the rule on the father as well as the mother of the unborn child. Among the sea dyaks, neither of the parents may bind up anything with string or make anything fast during the wife's pregnancy. In the Tombulu tribe of North Celebes, a ceremony is performed in the fourth or fifth month of a woman's pregnancy, and after it her husband is forbidden, among many other things, to tie any fast knots and to sit with his legs crossed over each other. In all these cases, the idea seems to be that the tying of a knot would, as they say in the East Indies, tie up the woman, in other words, impede and perhaps prevent her delivery, or delay her convalescence after the birth. On the principles of homeopathic or imitative magic, the physical obstacle or impediment of a knot on a cord would create a corresponding obstacle or impediment in the body of the woman. That this is really the explanation of the rule appears from a custom observed by the hoes of West Africa at a difficult birth. When a woman is in hard labour and cannot bring forth, they call in a magician to her aid. He looks at her and says, The child is bound in the womb, that is why she cannot be delivered. On the entreaties of her female relations, he then promises to loose the bond so that she may bring forth. For that purpose he orders them to fetch a tough creeper from the forest, and with it he binds the hands and feet of the sufferer on her back. Then he takes a knife and calls out the woman's name, and when she answers he cuts through the creeper with a knife, saying, I cut through today thy bonds and thy child's bonds. After that he chops up the creeper small, puts the bits in a vessel of water, and bathes the woman with the water. Here the cutting of the creeper with which the woman's hands and feet are bound is a simple piece of homeopathic or imitative magic. By releasing her limbs from their bonds, the magician imagines that he simultaneously releases the child in her womb from the trammels which impede its birth. The same train of thought underlies a practice observed by some peoples of opening all locks, doors, and so on, while a birth is taking place in the house. We have seen that at such a time the Germans of Transylvania open all the locks, and the same thing is done in Voigtland and Mecklenburg. In northwestern Argyllshire, superstitious people used to open every lock in the house at childbirth. In the island of Salset, near Bombay, when a woman is in hard labour, all locks or doors or drawers are opened with a key to facilitate her delivery. Among the mandalings of Sumatra, the lids of all chests, boxes, pans, and so forth are opened, and if this does not produce the desired effect, the anxious husband has to strike the projecting ends of some of the house-beams in order to loosen them, for they think that everything must be open and loose to facilitate the delivery. In Chittagong, when a woman cannot bring her child to the birth, the midwife gives orders to throw all doors and windows wide open, to uncork all bottles, to remove the buns from all casks, to unloose the cows in the stall, the horses in the stable, the watchdog in his kennel, to set free sheep, fowls, duck, and so forth. 
This universal liberty accorded to the animals, and even to inanimate things, is, according to the people, an infallible means of ensuring the woman's delivery and allowing the babe to be born. In the island of Sakhalien, when a woman is in labour, her husband undoes everything that can be undone. He loosens the plaits of his hair and the laces of his shoes. Then he unties whatever is tied in the house or its vicinity. In the courtyard he takes the axe out of the log in which it is stuck. He unfastens the boat if it is moored to a tree. He withdraws the cartridges from his gun and the arrows from his crossbow. Again, we have seen that a Tombulu man abstains not only from tying knots, but also from sitting with crossed legs during his wife's pregnancy. The train of thought is the same in both cases. Whether you cross threads in tying a knot, or only cross your legs in sitting at your ease, you are equally, on the principles of homeopathic magic, crossing or thwarting the free course of things, and your action cannot but check and impede whatever may be going forward in your neighbourhood. Of this important truth the Romans were fully aware. To sit beside a pregnant woman or a patient under medical treatment with clasped hands, says the grave Pliny, is to cast a malignant spell over the person, and it is worse still if you nurse your leg or legs with your clasped hands, or lay one leg over the other. Such postures were regarded by the old Romans as a let and hindrance to business of every sort, and at a council of war, or a meeting of magistrates, at prayers and sacrifices, no man was suffered to cross his legs or clasp his hands. The stock instance of the dreadful consequences that might flow from doing one or the other was that of Alcmena, who travelled with Hercules for seven days and seven nights, because the goddess Lucina sat in front of the house with clasped hands and crossed legs, and the child could not be born until the goddess had been beguiled into changing her attitude. It is a Bulgarian superstition that if a pregnant woman is in the habit of sitting with crossed legs, she will suffer much in childbed. In some parts of Bavaria, when conversation comes to a standstill and silence ensues, they say, surely somebody has crossed his legs. The magical effect of knots in trammelling and obstructing human activity was believed to be manifested at marriage, not less than at birth. During the Middle Ages, and down to the 18th century, it seems to have been commonly held in Europe that the consummation of marriage could be prevented by anyone who, while the wedding ceremony was taking place, either locked a lock or tied a knot in a cord, and then threw the lock or the cord away. The lock or the knotted cord had to be flung into water, and until it had been found and unlocked or untied, no real union of the married pair was possible. Hence it was a grave offence not only to cast such a spell, but also to steal or make away with the material instrument of it, whether lock or knitted cord. In the year 1718 the Parliament of Bordeaux sentenced someone to be burnt alive for having spread desolation through a whole family by means of knotted cords and in 1705 two persons were condemned to death in Scotland for stealing certain charmed knots which a woman had made in order thereby to mar the wedded happiness of Spalding of Ashintilly. 
the belief in the efficacy of these charms appears to have lingered in the highlands of Perthshire down to the end of the 18th century, for at that time it was still customary, in the beautiful parish of Logirate, between the river Tummel and the river Tay, to unloose carefully every knot in the clothes of the bride and bridegroom before the celebration of the marriage ceremony. We meet with the same superstition and the same custom at the present day in Syria. The persons who help a Syrian bridegroom to don his wedding garments take care that no knot is tied on them and no button buttoned, for they believe that a button buttoned or a knot tied would put it within the power of his enemies to deprive him of his nuptial rights by magical means. The fear of such charms is diffused all over North Africa at the present day. To render a bridegroom impotent, the enchanter has only to tie a knot in a handkerchief which he had previously placed quietly on some part of the bridegroom's body when he was mounted on horseback, ready to fetch his bride. So long as the knot in the handkerchief remains tied, so long will the bridegroom remain powerless to consummate the marriage. The maleficent power of knots may also be manifested in the infliction of sickness, disease, and all kinds of misfortune. Thus, amongst the hoes of West Africa, a sorcerer will sometimes curse his enemy and tie a knot in a stalk of grass, saying, I have tied up the so-and-so in this knot. May all evil light upon him. When he goes into the field, may a snake bite him. When he goes to the chase, may a ravening beast attack him. And when he steps into a river, may the water sweep him away. When it rains, may the lightning strike him. May evil nights be his. It is believed that in the knot the sorcerer has bound up the life of his enemy. In the Koran there is an allusion to the mischief of those who puff into the knots and an Arab commentator on the passage explains that the words refer to women who practice magic by tying knots in cords, and then blowing and spitting upon them. He goes on to relate how, once upon a time, a wicked Jew bewitched the Prophet Muhammad himself by tying nine knots on a string, which he then hid in a well. So the Prophet fell ill, and nobody knows what might have happened if the Archangel Gabriel had not opportunely revealed to the holy man the place where the knotted cord was concealed. The trusty Ali soon fetched the baleful thing from the well, and the Prophet recited over it certain charms, which were specially revealed to him for the purpose. At every verse of the charms a knot untied itself, and the Prophet experienced a certain relief. If knots are supposed to kill, they are also supposed to cure. This follows from the belief that to undo the knots which are causing sickness will bring the sufferer relief. But apart from this negative virtue of maleficent knots, there are certain beneficent knots to which a positive power of healing is ascribed. Pliny tells us that some folk cured diseases of the groin by taking a thread from a web tying seven or nine knots on it, and then fastening it to the patient's groin. But to make the cure effectual, it was necessary to name some widow as each knot was tied. O'Donovan describes a remedy for fever employed among the Turkomans. The enchanter takes some camel hair and spins it into a stout thread, droning a spell the while. Next he ties seven knots on the thread, blowing on each knot before he pulls it tight. 
this knotted thread is then worn as a bracelet on his wrist by the patient. Every day one of the knots is untied and blown upon, and when the seventh knot is undone, the whole thread is rolled up into a ball and thrown into a river, bearing away, as they imagine, the fever with it. Again, knots may be used by an enchantress to win a lover and attach him firmly to herself. Thus, the lovesick maid in Virgil seeks to draw Daphnis to her from the city by spells, and by tying three knots on each of three strings of different colours. So an Arab maiden, who has lost her heart to a certain man, tried to gain his love and bind him to herself by tying knots in his whip, but her jealous rival undid the knots. On the same principle, magic knots may be employed to stop a runaway. In Swaziland you may often see grass tied in knots at the side of the footpaths. Every one of these knots tells of a domestic tragedy. A wife has run away from her husband, and he and his friends have gone in pursuit, binding up the paths, as they call it, in this fashion, to prevent the fugitive from doubling back over them. A net, from its affluence of knots, has always been considered in Russia very efficacious against sorcerers. Hence, in some places, when a bride is being dressed in her wedding attire, a fishing net is flung over her to keep her out of harm's way. For a similar purpose, the bridegroom and his companions are often girt with pieces of net, or at least with tight-drawn girdles, for before a wizard can begin to injure them, he must undo all the knots in the net, or take off the girdles. But often a Russian amulet is merely a knotted thread. A skein of red wool wound about the arms and legs is thought to ward off agues and fevers, and nine skeins, fastened round a child's neck, are deemed a preservative against scarlatina. In the Tver government, a bag of a special kind is tied to the neck of the cow which walks before the rest of a herd, in order to keep off wolves. Its force binds the maw of the ravening beast. On the same principle, a padlock is carried thrice round a herd of horses, before they go afield in the spring, and the bearer locks and unlocks it as he goes, saying, I lock from my herd the mouths of the grey wolves with this steel lock. Knots and locks may serve to avert not only wizards and wolves, but death itself. When they brought a woman to the stake at St. Andrews in 1572 to burn her alive for a witch, they found on her a white cloth like a collar with strings and many knots on the strings. They took it from her sorely against her will, for she seemed to think that she could not die in the fire if only the cloth with the knotted strings was on her. When it was taken away, she said, Now I have no hope of myself. In many parts of England, it is thought that a person cannot die so long as any locks are locked or bolts shot in the house. It is therefore a very common practice to undo all locks and bolts when the sufferer is plainly near his end, in order that his agony may not be unduly prolonged. For example, in the year 1863 at Taunton, a child lay sick of scarlatina, and death seemed inevitable. A jury of matrons was, as it were, impanelled, and to prevent the child dying hard, all the doors in the house, all the drawers, all the boxes, all the cupboards were thrown wide open, 
the keys taken out, and the body of the child placed under a beam, whereby a sure, certain, and easy passage into eternity could be secured. Strange to say, the child declined to avail itself of the facilities for dying so obligingly placed at its disposal by the sagacity and experience of the British matrons of Taunton. It preferred to live rather than give up the ghost just then. The rule which prescribes that at certain magical and religious ceremonies the hair should hang loose and the feet should be bare is probably based on the same fear of trammelling and impeding the action in hand. Whatever it may be, by the presence of any knot or constriction, whether on the head or on the feet of the performer, a similar power to bind and hamper spiritual as well as bodily activities is ascribed by some people to rings. Thus, in the island of Carpathus, people never button the clothes they put upon a dead body, and they are careful to remove all rings from it. For the spirit, they say, can even be detained in the little finger and cannot rest. Here it is plain that even if the soul is not definitely supposed to issue at death from the fingertips, yet the ring is conceived to exercise a certain constrictive influence which detains and imprisons the immortal spirit in spite of its efforts to escape from the tabernacle of clay. In short, the ring, like the knot, acts as a spiritual fetter. This may have been the reason of an ancient Greek maxim, attributed to Pythagoras, which forbade people to wear rings. Nobody might enter the ancient Arcadian sanctuary of the mistress at Lycosura with a ring on his or her finger. Persons who consulted the oracle of Faunus had to be chaste, to eat no flesh, and to wear no rings. On the other hand, the same constriction which hinders the egress of the soul may prevent the entrance of evil spirits. Hence we find rings used as amulets against demons, witches, and ghosts. In the Tyrol it is said that a woman in childbed should never take off her wedding ring, or spirits and witches will have power over her. Among the laps, the person who is about to place a corpse in the coffin receives from the husband, wife, or children of the deceased a brass ring, which he must wear fastened to his right arm until the corpse is safely deposited in the grave. The ring is believed to serve the person as an amulet against any harm which the ghost might do to him. How far the custom of wearing finger rings may have been influenced by, or even have sprung from, a belief in their efficacy as amulets to keep the soul in the body, or demons out of it, is a question which seems worth considering. Here we are only concerned with a belief in so far as it seems to throw light on the rule that the Flamen Dialis might not wear a ring unless it were broken. Taken in conjunction with the rule which forbade him to have a knot on his garments, it points to a fear that the powerful spirit embodied in him might be trammelled and hampered in its goings out and comings in by such corporeal and spiritual fetters as rings and knots. End of chapter 21